Once a tourist was traveling through an Indian reservation where he was introduced to an Indian chief who was said to have a perfect memory. This tourist was kind of skeptical. He decided to test the chief. He said to him, tell me, what did you eat for breakfast on August the 2nd, 1954? The chief answered, eggs. Well, the tourist just scoffed. He says, yeah, everybody has eggs for breakfast. He left the reservation and the chief unimpressed. Well, 10 years later, the tourist, same tourist happened to stop at the same Indian reservation. And as soon as he exited the bus, guess who he saw? The chief with the perfect memory. The tourist slapped him on the back and jokingly said, how, chief? The Indian answered, scrambled. <laughs> well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul jumpstarts our memories. He takes us down a tour of memory lane. He recounts Israel's history as an example to the church. Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. You remember when the Hebrews exited from Egypt, they followed a cloud by day and a fire by night. What a sight that was. Obviously, God wanted their eyes fixed on His glory. And they all passed through the sea. And it doesn't matter how many times I watch the Ten Commandments, I always get goosebumps when Moses Heston raises his rod and the waters of that sea part before our very eyes, Israel's astonished eyes. Imagine having been there to eyewitness that miracle. What a miracle it was. And they all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Realize what happened to Israel historically is analogous to what happens to Christians spiritually. As the Hebrews were baptized into Moses, in a spiritual sense, you and I are baptized into Christ. Think of the parallels here. Our deliverer, Jesus, has led us out of an Egypt, the Egypt of this world. He's freed us from slavery, but sin's slavery. He's done a miracle by parting the waters of forgiveness, and we've crossed over into a new life. We're now a new nation, a new people, under new management. We've become new creations in Christ Jesus. So we've been baptized into Christ just as they were baptized into Moses. And in addition, we all ate the same spiritual food. You remember how God satisfied Israel's hunger in the wilderness? For 40 years, he supplied them with wonder bread or the manna. It was supernatural fiber and nutrition provided by God himself every morning. Psalm 78 verse 25 called the manna angel's food. I think of it as the first angel food cake. And God has also given to us Christians miracle bread to eat. Jesus is the bread of life. Our fellowship with him is food for our soul. It's spiritual sustenance. Jesus is the ultimate power bar. And verse 4, we've all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Remember twice during Israel's wilderness wanderings, God drew water from the rock. The first time Moses was told to strike the rock, 
He did so, and water gushed out. The second time, God told him to speak to the rock. But you remember, Moses got angry. He was fed up with Israel's complaining, and so in his frustration, he disobeyed God. Moses misrepresented God. Instead of just speaking to the rock, Moses struck the rock a second time. And for this act of defiance, God barred Moses from the promised land. He saw the land, but he didn't enter. We read of Moses' punishment and we wonder, was God excessive? Did the punishment really fit the crime? That is, until we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For here, Paul tells us that the rock in the wilderness was a type of Christ. Verse 4, that rock was Christ. Apparently, quenching the thirst of a few million Hebrews was actually a peripheral issue. God's main objective was to paint a picture for the Messiah. Jesus had to be struck once, once and for all, on the cross for our sins. Now all we believers have to do is speak to the rock and outpours the living water into our hearts. Spiritual refreshment. But Moses struck the rock a second time and he blew up the analogy. That's why Moses was punished. Verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And that word most is an understatement. Most was all but two. Caleb and Joshua, everyone else died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. And Paul's point is this. A good beginning doesn't ensure a good ending. Like the Israelites of old, the Corinthian believers had also seen miracles. They had eaten of Christ, the bread of life. They had drank from the same rock that is Christ. And yet that doesn't mean that they won't die in the wilderness if they become prideful and stop trusting and following and depending on Jesus. Paul's point is this. It's not how we start that matters, but it's how we finish. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And here Paul quotes Exodus 32 verse 6. You remember while Moses was meeting with God on top of Mount Sinai, Israel was feasting and dancing around their golden calf. They couldn't wait on God for 40 days before they sought his substitute and erected an idol. Verse 8. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. You, read, you can read Numbers chapters 22 through 25 to get the story, the story of Balaam in all its ugly details. Again, Israel showed their propensity for lust and for idols. Remember the king of Moab, he hired Balaam, an occult practitioner, a Middle Eastern soothsayer. He hired him to place a curse on the approaching Hebrews. But the true God prohibited Balaam from installing his curse. Balaam, though, was greedy. He found a workaround. He told the king of Moab that though God wouldn't let him curse the people, the Moabites could get God to curse them himself. Balaam told the king of Moab to send the seductive women of Moab into the camp of Israel. 
They would tempt the Israelites with idols and with illicit sex. He said that once the Hebrews succumbed to their lust, then their own God would judge them. And that's exactly what happened. 23,000 fell because of their sin. Now Paul is warning the believers in Corinth not to head down that same path. Flee from idolatry and flee from your lusts. He says, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. And here he references Numbers chapter 21. Remember, Israel complained and murmured over God's provision. And snakes came into the camp. They were snake bit. When God's people are known more from grumbling than for gratitude, the bite of judgment is on the horizon. He says, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. You know, there's a Jewish tradition that attributes God's harshest judgments to a single angel called the destroyer. I would imagine this angel is sort of like a divine battleship, the destroyer. Trust me, you don't want to meet the destroyer in a dark alley. But the surest way to rumble with the destroyer is to grumble about God's provision. Murmuring and complaining is really just a lack of faith. If we really believe God is in control, we'll stop our belly aching, won't we? I'm sure you've heard the expression, experience is the best teacher. But understand, it doesn't always have to be your own experience. You can keep slamming your head against the wall, or you can learn from other people's mistakes. And this is why Paul is giving us this history lesson. He wants to save the Corinthians and us a bruise on the noggin. He says in verse 11, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. What happened to Israel was an example to us. And if you don't learn from history, you're sure to repeat it. Thus, read verse 12 carefully. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Stay on your high horse long and you'll eventually get bucked off. Reminds me of Jose Cabrero, one of Spain's most brilliant matadors. He died in Madrid at the age of 21 years old. After thrusting his sword into the bull one last time, Cabrero spun around to acknowledge the cheers of the crowd. He didn't realize that that bull had one final lunge in him, and he rammed his horn through Jose's heart, through his back. Today, a statue memorializing Jose Cabrero and the event that took his life sits outside the bull ring. It's a warning that pride is the enemy of us all. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Verse 13, For no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What an important verse. You know, when the Union Pacific Railroad ran its first line from St. Louis to California. It built a trestle bridge over a deep gorge 
to assure safety, the chief engineer, he parked a train full of boxcars, loaded down with twice their normal payload on top of the bridge for a whole two weeks. One of the workers was upset. He said, what are you trying to do, break our bridge? The engineer replied, no, I'm showing that it's unbreakable. And you see, this is why God allows us to be tempted, to demonstrate his ability to keep us and to protect us. God knows our breaking point better than we do. He is aware of what we can and can't withstand. You know, at times, God saves us by tempering the temptation. At other times, he increases our resistance, but he always provides us a way out. There is always an escape hatch. No temptation has overtaken you. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able. And with the temptation, will make a way of escape. Here are four truths that you need to remember whenever you're tempted. First, you're not alone. You're not alone. Everybody gets tempted. There's no temptation that's overtaking you except as is common to man. Everyone gets tempted. It's the price for being human. I'm sorry. Second, remember, God is faithful. It's not a sin to be tempted. Remember that, too. God is with you in the struggle. He hasn't abandoned you because you're tempted. As a matter of fact, he comes to your aid. And then third, the temptation is winnable. You might not be able to beat it, but God can. He has the resources. He has the power. And he's able to help you escape. And then four, there's always a way out. God always has an exit strategy. You need to look for it. So remember those four truths. You're not alone. God is faithful. The temptation is winnable, and there's always a way out. And that's why he says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Remember in chapter 8 we learned that some of the Corinthian believers felt the freedom to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And Paul affirmed their freedom to do so. Meat is just meat. But apparently, other believers had carried their freedom too far. There's nothing wrong with eating a cut of meat that was once sacrificed to an idol. But when you eat that piece of meat in the pagan temple, with your pagan friends, in the context of a pagan celebration, while the pagan priest is performing his pagan rituals and uttering his pagan incantations, you see, at some point, your freedom has turned to foolishness. Some of the Corinthian believers had crossed the line. You know, they had toyed with this idolatry, and they had become guilty by association, and they had inadvertently gotten sucked back into their idolatry. That's why Paul says, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And Paul illustrates next what happens at the altar of an idol by explaining what happens at the table of the Lord. He says, I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Communion is a fitting name for what Jesus commanded us to do. For when we come to the Lord's table to eat and to drink, we commune 
with the Lord that is behind the table. A fellowship takes place between us and the Spirit of Jesus. That's why we call it communion. It's a point of contact where we can release our faith. At the table, we can reach up and touch the hem of His garment. Communion is a special occasion for us to fellowship with the Spirit of Christ. In verse 18, Paul says the same was true of the Old Testament sacrifices. He says, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? In a sense, a sacrifice was a spiritual transaction. See, the worshiper would approach the altar from the physical side, whereas the spirit behind the altar was present on the spiritual side. In the Old Testament temple and at the Lord's table, the worshiper is met by the spirit behind the altar or the Holy Spirit. A literal communion takes place. And this also occurred in the pagan temples. But it wasn't the Holy Spirit behind the altar. It was an evil spirit. It was a demon. Verse 19 tells us, What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? See, the idol itself was nothing but a stick or a stone. There's nothing divine about an idol. That's why for a believer in the know, meat sacrificed to idols was just meat. But in the ritual of sacrificing that meat, spiritual forces were at play. When an idolater brings his sacrifice to the pagan altar, there is someone there to receive it. Not the idol, the idol's nothing. But there are demons behind that idol. For Paul says, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Idols are idols. Meat is just meat. But idolatry is demonic. So don't walk into a pagan temple as if nothing spiritual is going on. Demons are dancing all over the place. You need to beware. Yes, the idol's nothing. The meat is just meat. But there's more to it. Idolatry is demonic. And you need to be aware of that. That's what he's telling these Christians in Corinth. Here's a modern day example for you and me. A fortune cookie. A fortune cookie is nothing but a mixture of flour and sugar with a little silly message inside. That's all it is. But if you take that message seriously, if you view it as an omen of the future, then it becomes a form of sorcery. Apart from God and His Word, we're not to try to know the future supernaturally. That's sorcery when we attempt techniques and methods to try to determine the future apart from God's Word. The message in the cookie doesn't somehow corrupt the cookie. I'll eat the cookie. Cookie's just a cookie. But I take no part in the prediction of it. So often whether something is good or evil depends on its context. Meat is harmless. Cookies are just cookies. Until they're used in a ritual that engages the demon behind it. A fortune cookie is benign until it becomes an attempt to predict the future through demonic influence. Then it becomes sin. Well, verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. 
You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Understand what was going on in the church at Corinth. The Corinthians were free. They knew idols and meat were nothing. But you see, they took their freedom too far. They figured it was okay to go to the family gatherings in the local pagan temple. When their company had the pagan priest come to dedicate the new store, they participated in the festivities. They failed to grasp the spiritual factors that were at play. The believers were flirting with idolatry as if there was nothing to it. There is nothing to the idol. There is nothing to the meat. But idol worship is real. And it's demonic. In essence, they were flirting with demons. And you can't follow Jesus and flirt with demons. God gets very, very jealous. So Paul says in verse 23, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Here again, he lays out the Christian ethic. God gives us a carte blanche freedom to do anything we like as Christians, as long as we live by love, not law. It's love that determines what's helpful and what edifies. See, if I love God, I won't do anything that would cause me to fumble away my faith. And if I love you, I won't do anything that causes you to stumble in your faith. So what causes me to fumble and you to stumble are both off limits to the person who loves. Love is the key to living the Christian life. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. That is love. Now Paul continues to deal with this issue of food. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If you're having a private barbecue for family and friends and everyone realizes that the meat is just meat, then go for it. Fire up the grill. Cook you some meat. It's going to be good. But if any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you. And for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all of its fullness. So if you're invited to someone else's house and nothing is said about the meat, then eat it. Because obviously it's not an issue to anyone at the dinner. But if your host mentions that that meat was offered to idols, then obviously it is an issue for him. And if you love that person, what's an issue for him now becomes an issue for you. And you will avoid any association with idolatry. In verse 29, Paul clarifies whose conscience it is that he's concerned about. He says, conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks... Why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? You see, the problem was not Paul's conscience, but the conscience of the person who didn't have the same understanding of liberty as Paul. See, that person will see Paul's exercise of freedom as sin. This man judges Paul by the restrictions of his own conscience. 
Paul is giving thanks for what this man sees as a compromise. And Paul is saying, why add fuel to the fire? Why do things that you know are going to be misinterpreted by someone else? If my liberty is going to be viewed by someone else as a moral lapse, or as poor judgment, or worse, as a betrayal of Christ, well then why would I even go there? You know, if I know my neighbor next door has this thing about alcohol, and I go mow the grass, and I walk out with a big old beer in my hand on the front porch and start slugging down a beer, you know, after I've mowed the lawn, and I know it's going to cause him to stumble, why would I do that? Why would I even go there if I know that his conscience is going to be affected by it? My primary concern should be to protect my witness in Christ, my witness for Christ, and to protect the faith of my brother. Got it? Verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the golden rule. That that kind of sums it all up, doesn't it? Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Here's Paul's advice. Give no offense. Do nothing that would give anyone the impression that you are compromising your loyalty to Jesus. Evaluate every activity, every use of your time, every pleasure by whether it promotes the gospel and builds up the church. If it promotes the gospel and builds up the church, you're free to do it. This is how Paul lived. Not just what was allowable, but what was helpful is what controlled his priorities. And whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is the context in which Paul makes his amazing declaration in verse 1 of chapter 11. He says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Paul was like Jesus. He used his liberty to spread the gospel and to build up the church. And he wants us to be like him as well. To do all to the glory of God. Verse 2. For now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now, the Corinthians were doing certain things right in their church, but they also had some glaring problems. Notably, the public assemblies of the church were out of order. And in the next four chapters, Paul will address misuses and abuses in the public meetings of their church. And the first issue that Paul tackles are gender roles, relationships between male and and female. Verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Let me repeat that. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Authority matters to God. God has designated roles and has established rank in the church and in the home. Look at nature and you'll discover that God created all life 
with order and with structure. Hey, all chiefs and no Indians is in order. It's chaos. There needs to be leadership. And God has a definite chain of command, and here Paul lists it. God the Father is head over Christ. Christ is head over the man, and man is head over the woman. And notice here, the only decline in equality in the chain is between Christ and man. You see, God the Father is head over Christ. Though both are equal in nature and in substance, man is head over the woman. Though, again, both are equal in value. But you see, equal does not mean same. The Father and Son are equal in nature, but they're different in roles. And the same is true for the man and the woman. Actually, I'm not sure it's accurate to say that the wife and husband are equal. Truth be known, most wives are superior to their husband. I mean, a woman's submission to her husband has nothing to do with any inferiority on her part. It is the role that God has assigned to her. Verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now, when a Jew entered a synagogue, or when the Jews go to the wailing wall to pray, they do so with their heads covered. They wear a yarmulke. It can be colorful, or it can have the logo of your favorite team. There we go. Yeah. This year in Israel, I happened to notice one yarmulke. It was stitched with the word Trump on the back. I think the president's been Israel's friend. This particular Jew wanted to acknowledge it. All Jews wear a skull cap or a kippah or a yarmulke. It's a reminder that someone is over them, that God is over them, that he is their authority. This is why it's strange to hear a Jewish rabbi like Paul say these words. Every man having his head covered dishonors his head. Remember, though, Paul is writing to who? Not Jews. He's writing to Greeks, to Gentiles. When a Corinthian man entered the pagan temple to worship his idol, he would wrap his toga over his head. In Corinthian culture, a man who prayed with his head covered was associating with idol worship. Thus, unlike a Jew... A Christian man who covered his head would be sending a wrong message. He would be indicating his participation in idolatry. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. In Corinth, Christian men prayed with their heads uncovered while believing women wore a light headscarf. At the time, all Oriental women wore their hair long and under a veil. This wasn't the heavy burqa worn by Muslim women today. No, the veil worn in Corinth was just a light shawl draped over the head. Like a Jewish man's kippah, a headscarf was a symbol that the woman wearing it was under authority, that she was living in submission to her husband or to her father. 
the only women in Corinth who wore their hair short and ventured out into public without a veil were prostitutes. You recall when the woman came to Jesus and wiped her feet with her, his feet with her hair, apparently what appalled the Pharisee was when the woman removed her veil and let her hair down. That was the first century taboo. You didn't let your hair down. You didn't, you didn't let your hair out from under the veil. And evidently, this was what was happening in Corinth. You see, these Christian sisters were enjoying their freedom in Christ to the point where they thought they could shed their veils. They could get rid of the headscarf. It was first century women's liberation. They weren't bra burners. They were veil shedders. That's what they were. Here's a sidebar. It is interesting that the female liberation began among the first Christians. Nothing has done more for women's rights in the world than Christianity. In the Greco-Roman world, in the Muslim world, even in ancient Israel, women were considered a man's personal property. They were a notch above a slave. It was Christianity that ennobled women and elevated their status. Paul declared in Galatians 3 verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. This was new and revolutionary. This was an idea that echoed throughout the ancient world. But recall Paul's point in these chapters. As with meat sacrificed to idols, as with the privileges of an apostle, there are times when a Christian curtails his or her own freedom for the sake of the gospel and for a bigger issue, for a spiritual issue. This needs to be the attitude of the Christian women in Corinth. The Corinthian ladies were free to shed their veil, but what message would that send to their neighbors? God still has a chain of command in the church and in the home. He still wants men to lovingly lead and women to willingly follow. Thus, for a female to throw off a symbol of submission, it would be seen by her neighbors as her bucking God. Understand? In 21st century America, customs and symbols have changed. But biblical principles have not. Cultural symbols vary, but creation principles remain the same. Today, if a woman wears a scarf or a veil, it has nothing to do really with her submission to her husband. It's either a fashion statement or it's probably she's having a bad hair day. That's why she puts a veil on or a, or a scarf. Ladies, don't think you need to start a veil collection. You don't. But there are symbols of submission in modern culture that a Christian lady should take seriously if she wants to convey an attitude of submission to her friends. For example, taking your husband's last name when you marry. That makes a profound statement, as does wearing his wedding ring or exchanging traditional vows. The point is, a Christian lady is responsible for the message that she sends to her culture. Verse 6, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. Remember, prostitutes were the ones that shaved their heads. And here Paul is being a bit sarcastic. He's saying if a woman wants to go out without a headscarf, then she should just go out and shave her head. Just go all the way with it, you know. 
both acts can make the same statement to the pagan community in Corinth, that she doesn't want to bend her authority. He writes, But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Now when God created man, he said it is not good for man to be alone. And God's ultimate answer for Adam's aloneness was to take from his side that which he would make for him a wife. After Eve was created, literally, a part of the man was missing. And it should shock no women whatsoever to learn that their husband is not all there. He's missing some parts. That's why for most men to be complete, they need a woman by their side. The woman was created from and for her husband. As man is God's pride and joy, his glory. The woman is the glory of man. A husband takes pride in his wife. She's his glory. Thus a woman will find her greatest fulfillment by helping the man she loves. And a man will find his highest fulfillment by protecting and providing for his wife. This is the way God God established it from the very beginning. And as if this passage isn't tricky enough, check out verse 10. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Oh yeah, because of the angels. What in the world do the angels have to do with gender roles? And the answer to that is we're not sure. But in Scripture, angels do seem to have a high regard for rank and order. You'll recall from numerous passages, both angels and demons are organized in, quote, principalities and powers. They get organized. You remember when Satan stepped over God's chain of command, he got the boot. Angels are very interested in how God orders authority, and therefore they pay close attention to the roles between male and female. But just because men are head over women, it doesn't mean that they should get haughty and get arrogant and not realize their dependence on women. For God made the sexes interdependent, verse 11 tells us. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. In other words, both sexes need each other. Our roles should complement one another, not compete or counsel out one another. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. The first woman came from the first man. But every man since has come from a woman. Happy Mother's Day. God made it so that women need men and men need women. We are interdependent. Different in roles, but equal in value. Different in roles, but equal in value. 
Paul stays on subject in verse 13. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Wow. Here in chapter 11, we're going from one hairy issue to another, man. Apparently, prior to the headscarf or to any other cultural symbol of submission, God ingrained into nature certain signs of submission. They're, ingra- they're natural. They're ingrained into nature. For example, the length of a person's hair. And it is amazing to me how the length of a person's hair has and can reveal the state of that person's heart. Though there's nuances to this, generally speaking, it's true that in most cultures, ancient and modern, women grow and wear their hair longer than men. Women's hair grows faster and longer than men's. Now, there's all kinds of derivations and all kinds of exceptions and so forth, but generally speaking, Women grow and wear their hair longer than men. Do you remember back in the 1960s when young men were bucking the establishment? What was the symbol of their rebellion? What was the symbol of their rebellion? It was their long hair. They grew their hair out long. Whenever women have rebelled against traditional roles, what's the one way that they've expressed their defiance? Short hair. That's right, short hair. The length of a person's hair can reveal the lean of that person's heart. Now, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole here. Because I realize that there are a lot of men who grow their hair long just because they like it long. And it's also true that women cut their hair short just because it's easier, it's cooler, whatever. It's also true that the terms long and short are relative. I mean, what's long? If you're bald, everybody's got long hair. I've always considered long hair to be hair longer than my wife's. And whatever length Kathy's happened to be at the time, you know, I made sure that mine was shorter than that. There's another biblical principle that stands out. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So you need to realize up front that when God looks at us, the first thing he sees is our heart, not our hair. But can the length of a person's hair say something about their heart? Paul says yes. He says nature itself dictates that generally women have longer hair than men. And when either sex defies nature... It can be a sign of rebellion, and it can be. Now, I love how Paul finishes up his thoughts on gender and gender roles. Verse 16, but if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm not going to argue with you over these gender issues. He's not going to argue about here. God created us. And God can assign to us the roles that he desires. 
It's not Paul's opinion. It's not anybody's opinion. It's the Word of God. You either believe it or you don't. But Paul says, I'm not going to argue with you about it. I like that. Verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better but for the worst. Now, Paul is dealing with problems in the public assembly of the church in Corinth. And in essence, he's saying here, it would be better off if you guys just closed the doors. I mean, the way you guys are meeting on Sundays, you're doing more harm than good. He says, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Now, understand this. Divisions are never good, but sometimes they are necessary. Be suspicious of people who want perfect unity in church and try to damp down all dissent. Be careful of those people. For where there's perfect unity, somebody isn't thinking. You understand that? Where there's perfect unity, somebody isn't thinking or somebody's being suppressed. See, God created the church to be self-correcting. The movements of the Holy Spirit the living power of the Word of God, the fresh conscience of every new believer are the tools that God uses to keep the church on track and to make course corrections when necessary. Protestant Reformation was a huge course correction. We thank the Lord for it. That was a division that was needed. There have to be disagreements for corrections to occur. Factions among you are not always bad. Verse 20, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Now, here's the first issue. You know, it's dealing with the public assembly of the church. And the first thing that they're really, they're really blowing it on the Lord's Supper. I mean, the believers in Corinth were coming to the Lord's Supper and getting drunk at the communion table. How bad is this? Realize in the early church, believers had, would gather on the first day of the week for a church-wide potluck. They called it the agape feast or the love feast. It was a meal that was followed by communion. But the, Corinthian, the Corinthians, their behavior contradicted the name of the meal. There was no love in this feast. There was nothing but selfishness in their gatherings. They were fighting over first dibs on the food. They were drinking too much wine. It was a free-for-all. There was no love in their love feast. Their practice of the Lord's Supper had left out the Lord. Paul writes, what? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. You can pig out and get drunk at home. They, they didn't need to bring such behavior to church and make a mockery of worship and fellowship. See, the early church was highly populated by the poor and by the slaves. For many of its members, this was the only decent meal they'd have all week. Thus their love feast was a sham, and how it grieved Paul and the Lord. 
Verse 23 is what every pastor should be able to say when he stands up and addresses his people. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. What we give our congregation should be what we get from God. And Paul recounts Jesus' words at his last supper. That the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus took the Passover Seder, which at the time was a 1,500-year-old tradition, and he gave it brand new meaning. From then on, the bread would represent his body, and the cup of wine would remind us of his blood. The bread, or matzah, served at the Passover Seder. It symbolized faith. The cakes were made in haste, baked without yeast in anticipation of the next day's deliverance. Now they speak to us of our faith in Jesus. The wine symbolized sacrifice. It was a reminder of the blood that was smeared on the doorposts of every Hebrew home. And because of that blood, God's judgment passed over just as it passes over us due to the blood of Jesus shed for us. Over the centuries, different views have developed to explain the significance of communion. Roman Catholics consider what happens nothing less than magical. They teach that the bread and the wine actually turn into the literal body and blood of Christ. Baptists view it as a memorial, that it's just a reminder of the historical event of Calvary. But I believe that these last few verses in chapter 10 teach us that it's more, that communion is actually mystical. It's not magical, it's not a memorial, but it's mystical. It's an occasion for us to experience Jesus in real time and in a real way. Recall earlier, Paul said that going to the altar of an idol, you create an entry point for the spirit behind that idol. Well, likewise, to eat and drink at the Lord's table, you create an entryway for the spirit of Christ behind the table to work in your spirit. Thus, you expect real communion to take place. This is the beauty of communion that we are coming to the table and that we can interact with the spirit behind the table. That was what the sacrifices were all about. And this was what communion should be all about, that when we come to the Lord's table, you know, we're reaching behind the veil. There's a window where we can reach and we can grab the hem of his garment and we can receive virtue and receive healing from him. That's why he talks about healing in the next few verses. Verse 26. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. Notice he doesn't tell us how often. He just says, as often. That leaves the frequency of communion up to each believer in each individual church. But as often as you do it, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. He declare, we declare his sacrifice when we take communion. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, 
And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, this was the verse that struck horror in my heart when I was a child. The way our former church interpreted verse 27 robbed me of any joy I had from communion for years. It struck fear in my heart. The idea we were taught was that unless you made yourself worthy and lived as a worthy Christian, as a good Christian, or at least put yourself through a rigorous self-examination and confessed all your sin, you shouldn't participate. Communion could be hazardous to your health. Even threaten your life could be lethal. For he says, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself. Do you want to drink judgment to yourself? Yeah, we get scared to death. I'd be afraid to take the cup and put it to my lips. Taking that piece of bread, like taking a piece of arsenic. Boy, I wasn't sure I'd survive. How can you be worthy? We were fearful of God's judgment, but in reality, we should have been fearful of bad grammar. That was our real problem. For we mistook an adverb for an adjective. You see, the old King James uses the word unworthily as an adverb describing the act of eating, not as an adjective relating to the eater. The new King James offers a better translation. It says, in an unworthy manner. No one can make themselves worthy of communion or of Christ. The point of the gospel is that we're unworthy and we can't do it ourselves. If we could be worthy, Christ would have never had to die in our place. There's no way you can make yourself worthy, but you can eat and drink in a worthy manner. You see, Paul is just reiterating what he's already said. Don't pig out and get drunk. The Corinthians should approach the Lord's table with a humble and with a grateful heart, anticipating communion, touching his robe, having faith, receiving from him. No one is worthy, but we can all come in a worthy manner, in love and gratitude and faith. Notice the last line in verse 29. Not discerning the Lord's body, that was their problem, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, are literally, or dead. Now, I always interpreted this as part of the scare tactic. If you didn't clean yourself up before taking communion, God would make you sick or even strike you dead, you know. But notice the phrase, not discerning the Lord's body. You remember Isaiah 53 tells us, by his stripes we are healed. Where was our healing paid for? It was through the scourging of Jesus Christ. It was through the stripes laid on his body. Jesus paid for our healing in his body. Thus, if you just blow through communion with a bad attitude without recognizing what it actually means, you can miss out on a healing because it's through his broken body that we're healed. And that's why the church members were sick and weak, and some of them had died, because they hadn't appropriately understood communion and the opportunity we have at communion to receive healing from the Lord. My question to you tonight would be, have you understood properly understood communion? When you come to the Lord's table, do you do so with a spirit of anticipation? Are you hungry? Are you excited? 
Are you full of faith? Are you reaching behind the veil to receive what the Lord has for you? I hope so. If not that, maybe that's why you're sick. Why are you going to die soon? So forth. But it's not about you being worthy. It's about you coming in a worthy manner and appreciating what we have and what we have in Christ Jesus and what we can be given. So, Paul wraps up his thoughts in verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. God is a father who loves his kids enough to correct them. Aren't we thankful? Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come.